Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.15-1769. As the British troops began to regain control over Boston, outrage spread throughout the colonies during 1769. We ended last time discussing that, in the end, the response to the Townsend Acts would lose momentum and fizzle out. Yet, even with knowing that, I think it would be helpful for us to move through the colonies and look at both their responses to the news of the British Army entering Boston, as well as how they interpreted the events going on around them. Although angry remonstrances of the colonies asserting their rights would continue to flow throughout 1769, there would be a general sense of calm when it came to actual violence. Of course, we know with the benefit of hindsight, that the lack of more extreme radicalism and violence throughout the colonies during 1769 did not mark the end of anything. At the end of today, we are going to have our story sitting on March 5th, 1770, when anger and tension in Boston is going to explode outward, as everybody is going to learn the real risks that came from having an army living amongst a civilian population. That, however, is a topic for next time. News of the British Army moving into Boston was met with predictable condemnation throughout all of the colonies. While the other colonies were not exactly looking to turn to outright open warfare with the British, nor were they excited by the events that were taking place up in Massachusetts. The most common manifestation of the anger throughout the colonies came in a more widespread adoption of the circular letter which is the exact kind of thing that the British were trying to avoid. Hillsborough had tried to get ahead of this by sending notices to the other colonies, warning that, should the circular letter land on their desks, they should go ahead and ignore it. If the assemblies got other ideas, the governors were to follow Bernard's lead and dissolve those assemblies. Virginia, New Jersey, and Connecticut had acted prior to troops entering Boston. We had in fact discussed that Virginia's response to the circular letter went even further than the Massachusetts circular letter. We talked about that back in episode 4.13. For those colonies that had been on the fence, well, as it would turn out, there was nothing like troops marching into Boston to get them off the fence. Quickly, Maryland jumped on board and sent along their own petition to the king. A few months later, it was Delaware. North Carolina, and Georgia, all getting on board with the program. In all of these situations, the warnings by Hillsborough to not recognize the circular letter served more as an accelerant than it did any kind of a deterrent. Tell us to ignore the circular letter? Well, watch this. Pennsylvania would prove to be a bit more of a complicated situation. The Quakers in the colony had revived some though certainly not all, of the power that they had lost during the French and Indian War. The Quakers, still just as pacifist as the last time we left them, did the most logical thing when the circular letter came to them. They stalled. Joseph Galloway, the Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, would publish under a pseudonym in opposition to Hillsborough. However, Pennsylvania was still busy trying to get a royal governor, and thus Galloway was reluctant to push matters too far. 
The real problem for Galloway is that he had very much lost the room by this point, as the colonists are clamoring for action in support of Massachusetts. Galloway, recognizing that he had lost this round, acquiesced and sent a petition to London like the other colonies. The one exception being that they did not formally adopt the circular letter. In New York, the battle over the circular letter took the form of a highly partisan affair. The ruling faction in the colony, under the leadership of Robert Livingston, had taken a political blow when he had given into the Quartering Act a few years before. Recall we had talked about that back in episode 4.10. Although Livingston had survived the ordeal, he was wounded, to be sure. The Delancey faction, now led by James and John Delancey, the son of the James Delancey that we had met back last season, spied an opportunity. James Delancey was a loyalist to his core and certainly was not a fan of the circular letter. This made it all the more surprising when he helped lead the charge for its adoption. The play here for Delancey was that if the circular letter was passed, the governor, Sir Henry Moore, would be forced to dissolve the assembly. This would in turn lead to a new set of elections, which would sweep the Delancey faction right back into power. And that is exactly what happened. The Delanceys pushed through the circular letter, the assembly was dissolved, new elections were called, and the Delanceys were swept right back into power. More than just angry letters back to London, the colonies at this point did get on board with a non-importation agreement. This had worked well during the Stamp Act, and indeed it was pressure from nervous British merchants that really proved to be the catalyst for the ultimate repeal of the Stamp Act. As we talked about in our last episode, the colonies throughout the remainder of 1768 and 69 did in fact move towards limited importations. This had a meaningful effect economically on the British. However, unlike with the Stamp Act, the British did not blink. As we talked about during that episode, one of the biggest problems for the colonies in reaction to the Townsend Acts was that there was nothing resembling meaningful coordination with their colonial brethren. Everybody was pretty much doing their own thing. Every colony, with the exception of New Hampshire, would eventually get on board with some kind of non-importation agreement. However, the extent to exactly what they did differed wildly. Some of the colonies, such as New York, jumped on non-importation and indeed took the single biggest hit from it. Other colonies, like Pennsylvania, dragged their feet as much as possible, before finally coming to a resigned acceptance. It is also interesting to note that several colonies, especially those in the South, used these non-importation agreements to block the importation of slaves. For a lot of the colonies, this was an extension of that previous rollback of the importation of slaves that we had talked about previously. Partially based in economics, as the supply of slaves in the southern colonies was outpacing the demand, as well as part concern over the personal safety from large slave populations. The new non-importation agreements provided nice political cover to pause new slaves from making their way into the colonies. 
although New Hampshire would never join in the non-importation agreements. They were the only colony not to join. The other one that we should be mentioning here is Rhode Island. Rhode Island, looking around and seeing that their neighbors had ceased trading with the British, quickly attempted to jump in and seize the suddenly available business. This obviously did not amuse the other colonies, who were not happy that Rhode Island was trying to make a buck off their hardships. As a result of this, several of those colonies ended up talking, loudly, about a non-trade agreement against Rhode Island. It is indeed possible that New York may have actually taken steps to cut off business with Rhode Island. Either way, this really never went that far as Rhode Island was not interested in being isolated, and they too got on board with non-importation. One colony in particular that we need to spend some time with, both in relations to the non-importation agreement, as well as their role in the entire overall resistance movement, is Virginia. So often in the narrative of our story, regarding the different duties and the acts that were passed against the American colonies, we can get lost in Massachusetts. It is really not difficult to understand why. It is in Massachusetts that you have the most outwardly radical outpouring. Boston is going to be, in our next episode in fact, the center of the Boston Massacre. A bit further down the road, they are going to host a tea party. Then we are but a short jump to Lexington and Concord. However, as we have already spent some time talking about today, the feelings of animosity towards the crown were not simply contained to any single region of the American colonies, nor were they isolated to a particular class. Rather, the growing movement moved throughout all the colonies and flowed throughout the different classes. If Boston marked the center of the action to the north, it was certainly Virginia that was the lodestar of the South. We talked earlier today about the fact that Virginia had actually exceeded the Massachusetts circular letter in its scope. I do believe, though, that it would be useful to dig a little deeper into what Virginia is doing during the late 1760s. What the House of Burgesses had produced in 1768 was a scathing retort of the Townsend duties. London, attempting to get a handle over the situation, handed Lord Botetot the governorship, with the intention that should the House of Burgesses not get with the program, they were to be dissolved. Among those who were growing increasingly disenchanted with the British was the man that accidentally helped kick off a global war some years before, when he had ambushed a French envoy. George Washington was among those who had become fed up with British policy. Writing to George Mason in 1769, Washington expressed that among his views against British taxation was that the colonists themselves needed to set a precedent of opposition against future British incursions. In other words, just as the British struggled to not let the repeal of the Stamp Act become precedent, Washington believed that the American colonists needed to fight against the British setting a precedent themselves of being able to arbitrarily tax the Americans. Washington would therefore become one of the staunchest supporters of a non-importation agreement, going so far as working with George Mason to lay out the guidelines for such an action. 
This marks a critical moment not only for Washington, but for Virginia politics as well. Going back to the Stamp Act, we have seen a more radical element within the House of Burgesses. Let us not forget that the first resistance to the Stamp Act came not from James Otis or Samuel Adams, but rather from Patrick Henry in Virginia. Washington had himself for years become more and more frustrated with the British. Now, to be sure, some of this was personal. He still did hold grudges about his time fighting with the British in the French and Indian War. However, as we discussed a moment ago, his views regarding British policy towards the colonies were also evolving, pushing him to support and even help design a plan for non-importation. Virginia politics for several years now has been changing as well. Along with Patrick Henry, the House of Burgesses had seen new members who were far less likely to go along with the old guard. Washington's involvement with the non-importation agreement marked a pivotal moment in his own career, as he suddenly found himself taking a more active role in the Burgesses. Though he had been a member of the House of Burgesses for a while now, he had been a representative of Frederick County since 1758. Washington had never been a terribly active member. However, following his work with Mason in 1769, he suddenly found himself climbing politically and would be far more of an active member moving forward. 1769 also saw another newcomer to the House, a 26-year-old lawyer elected to represent Albemarle County, named Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was born on April 2, 1743, in a simple wooden house in Albemarle County, Virginia. The son of a planter, Jefferson quickly developed a love for the outdoors. Throughout his entire life, Despite the fact that he always seemed to fit in best in urban centers, Jefferson would choose to proclaim himself as being a farmer. Jefferson was, to be clear, not born into poverty. Rather, he was born into a life of privilege. His family absolutely counted itself amongst the Virginia gentry. Following the death of his father in 1757, the 14-year-old Jefferson found himself being raised solely by his mother. His mother was, by all accounts, an intelligent woman, literate and well-versed in the issues of the day, something that would surely rub off on her eldest son. Educated in the law at the College of William and Mary, Jefferson found himself being taken under the wing of George Wythe. Wythe would, in 1764, following up James Otis, write his own tract denouncing the British taxation policies. As the Stamp Act crisis erupted, Thomas Jefferson quite literally stood on the sidelines, soaking it all in. Jefferson was in the House of Burgesses on that day in May 1765, when Patrick Henry gave his impassioned and borderline treasonous speech about the rights of British subjects. This is the world that Thomas Jefferson grew up in. During his most formative years, Jefferson lived in a world of political drama, where he was both mentored by and had the chance to observe the growing political discord in the colonies. Of course, in 1765, the then 22-year-old Jefferson had no idea that in just 11 short years, he would pen one of the most monumentous documents in American history. However, clearly, by the middle part of the 1760s, the groundwork was already being laid. 
The emergence of men like Washington, Henry, and soon Jefferson would begin to change the landscape of politics in Virginia. This changing of the guard was coming at a time that really could have had done nothing but give the British heartburn. A younger, more radical political crowd was increasing their hold over colonial politics, as the colonists were eager to show that their resistance to the Stamp Act was the rule, rather than the exception. Now, I'm really not going to beat the fact that the non-importation agreement would eventually fizzle out. We already talked about this last time, and we know that the lack of coordination in the American response would be the eventual downfall of the non-importation agreements. However, though we know that this round of economic restrictions will ultimately not produce the desired results, there are a couple of critical things to realize about these agreements. First, the colonial economy would have to rapidly change in order to come to grips with the loss of British goods. In certain instances, this meant that the production of some goods had to move away from the British towards production within the colonies. In other situations, this would lead the population to flat out rejecting other types of goods, such as certain types of wine and tea. Likewise important was the failure of the non-importation agreement itself. The fact that everybody was doing their own thing would doom the entire attempt at the agreement. Sure, it took a minute to fall apart, but the unequal actions being taken colony to colony was always going to cause tension. When New York, who really took the lion's share of the loss, bailed out in 1770, the entire thing fell like dominoes across the colonies. Because the truth all along was that this was not 13 colonies working in unison. This was 13 colonies all agreeing that something needed to be done, agreeing that the thing to do was non-importation, and then producing different agreements in each participating colony. The lack of coordination doomed the entire effort. While it would ultimately sink the entire non-importation agreement, it provided a valuable lesson for the colonists about what they were going to need to do in the future. Resistance towards British policy spread throughout society. Frustration towards the Townsend Acts was not isolated to the Boston Radicals or the Southern Gentry either. We have talked at length thus far about arguments over taxation and how the colonists were resisting the taking of their property, thus violating their rights as British citizens. However, throughout the second half of the 1760s, those feelings would permeate through all ranks of society. It was not just the upper classes and the merchants that were resisting British policy. The movement had spread into the lower classes as well. In these lower classes, resistance would manifest differently. Of course, resistance had to manifest differently. Rather than a defense of property rights in a direct form, as we are talking about classes right now that felt little to no economic impact as a result of the Townsend duties, what emerged were fights over basic rights and concepts of social justice. These people tended to be deeply religious, a fervor that had really blossomed dating back to the Great Awakening. Critically, as we saw back during the Stamp Act, it is these people 
who were most willing to take to the streets. These were the people who were making the most noise, even if it came out the direction of the middle-class merchants. We have already talked about Herman Husband and the Regulators back in episode 4.10. However, he really is the archetype for what we are talking about here today. Husband had been highly influenced by the events of the Great Awakening. He and his fellow Regulators did not represent the rich and powerful factions in the colony. Rather, Husband was the leader of a group of backcountry farmers. Farmers who were indeed the antithesis of the rich planters in the South. In North Carolina, the Regulators continued to cause problems for the North Carolina leadership and ultimately would elect Husband to the legislature in 1769. With tensions already high, the entire situation would be further inflamed when the legislature was disbanded as a result of North Carolina's acceptance of the circular letter and the creation of a non-importation agreement. Husband had come into the legislature with a radical set of ideas that would have addressed the grievances of the backcountry farmers. However, the disbanding of the assembly interrupted any real hope for reform. The farmers, infuriated by these developments, would, in September 1770, march on the Rowan County Courthouse in Hillsborough, North Carolina. There, they seized a local justice and beat him to a bloody pulp. Then, for good measure, they broke into his house and thoroughly ransacked it. Well, Husband and his regulators drew their major beef with the colonial leadership, they also represented growing frustration and radicalization throughout society. Although not producing the pamphlets of a John Dickinson or a petition like the Circular Letter, this expansion of radical ideals throughout all rungs of society is a critical component of the fight to come. The regulators will remain a serious thorn in the side of North Carolina's governor, William Tyron, for years to come. It is also worth a mention that this is not the last time we are going to talk about Herman Husband, as he is going to continue to pop up from time to time as something of a professional rabble-rouser. One of the biggest impacts of the later part of the 1760s had been a deepening of the resolve on both sides. I am always going to be hesitant to point out a moment where the American Revolution becomes some kind of predestined inevitability. Really, up until the spring of 1775, there were places to bail out. Even after the outbreak of hostilities, although it would have been pretty unlikely at this point, there were still things that could have been done to bring the situation back under control. However, if we go back to an analogy that I used once before, that this entire thing is a highway with many exit points, where things could have gone differently. By the end of the 1760s, the number of exits was noticeably shrinking. Each new tax passed in Britain, every single polemic written in America, from the deployment of troops in Boston to the non-importation agreements to the tone-deaf, often flippant responses from British leadership, all of these things are marching the American colonies towards what we all know is coming. As it turns out, the British, when they passed the Declaratory Act, 
did not just do so to save face. Rather, they actually meant what they said and they were intent on proving it. Just as Americans like George Washington sought to avoid the establishment of a precedent of accepting British taxation, the British wanted to avoid a precedent of giving into colonial pressure. We hinted at the fact that by the summer of 1768, the British, rather than backing down, were entrenching. Well, nobody liked the letters from a Pennsylvania farmer. It was that circular letter that took things one step too far. As I mentioned back during episode 4.13, Parliament did not even really care anymore about the Townsend Acts. Had the colonists done nothing at all, it may well have led to their repeal. However, the circular letter forced many in Parliament into a position where doubling down was their preferred course of action. The most hawkish responses came from a handful of members within Parliament. However, among them was Lord Hillsborough himself. Hillsborough believed that the only way he could bring the colonies back under control was with a hard-line approach. Thomas Gage agreed with this and wrote to Hillsborough that the current struggle in the colonies was for nothing less than independence itself. The British felt that they had few options at this point. And for a man like Hillsborough, whose job was to help administer the colonies, he viewed a strict response as the best option. Nobody actually liked the Townsend duties. Most wished that they had never been a thing to begin with. However, it was not really about those duties anymore. The battle taking place in 1768 and onward was not about any specific tax, but rather was about the Declaratory Act and parliamentary prerogative within the American colonies. Hillsborough believed that by backing down and giving into American demands, it would have done nothing but reinforce that it was the Americans who were in control, rather than Parliament. Throughout the summer of 1768, this rift would grow steadily deeper. In a series of correspondence between Hillsborough and Thomas Pitkin, the governor of Connecticut, both sides made their position clear. For Pitkin, the agreement was that the relationship between the British and the colonists was more akin to a contractual agreement than anything else. Pitkin argued that going all the way back to Charles II, the agreement had always been that the colonists should be treated the same as subjects back in Great Britain itself. Hillsborough was having none of this. He wrote back in response that Pitkin's position was denying the British their right of complete supremacy over the colonies. That year, the King's speech struck a comparable theme. The speech lambasted Boston for their actions. In 1769, it was William Knox that took up the mantle of publishing scathing attacks on the colonists. In these attacks, he argues that the colonies needed to remember their place in the empire. He actually moves further than others and attacks the idea that the colonial merchants should ever have had an advantage over those in Britain proper to begin with. Knox advocated that if the colonists do not back down from their position, then force would be justified to accomplish that end. 
Knox would finish by touching on the economic dilemma. The British were desperate to maintain economic ties with the colonists, something that continued political drama threatened to undermine. Knox argued that the colonists, on the other hand, were realizing their potential and were anxious to break free of the British stranglehold and open up trade to the other European powers. For the British, what we see moving through 1769 is that the popular sentiment was shifting away from the Americans. The opinions of men like Knox helped fuel that British response. This was clearly not an unpopular opinion either. Hillsborough was certainly on board with a more hardline approach. During his speech, George III likewise called out Boston for their continued resistance to British supremacy. What 1769 therefore saw was not the British backing down, but rather them entrenching and refusing to budge out of principle. We have spent today bouncing around the colonies and seeing what was going on outside of Massachusetts. Well, we can see growing radicalism, be it from the new emerging leadership in Virginia or from the backcountry farmers organizing under Herman Husband, tensions were unquestionably on the rise. However, it is impossible to ignore the elephant in the room, that is Boston. Although widespread rioting did not break out with the arrival of British troops, as had been previously hinted at, nor were the British regulars greeted happily as old friends. Fights over the quartering of troops and their very presence amongst the people of the colony continued to ratchet up colonial animosity. Non-importation had a marked effect on the Massachusetts economy that would, in time, prove to have profound effects. Non-importation meant that manufacturing in Massachusetts had to rapidly develop and grow in order to bridge the gap that existed from the lack of British goods coming into the colony. Home production of goods had obvious economic advantages, something that manufacturers were eager to keep. Indeed, by the end of the 1760s, there were those advocating that imports from Britain should remain minimized, regardless of if they backed off of the Townsend duties. The economic growth that took place throughout the colony was happening not only in Boston, but importantly throughout all of the smaller towns as well. While there may have been resistance to joining in with the more radical elements making up the Sons of Liberty outside of Boston, those same small towns enjoyed the benefits that came with an expansion of manufacturing goods within the colony. Now, to be clear, this was not going to be an overnight change. It isn't as though non-importation began and suddenly Massachusetts was producing at the same level and quality as the British the process would take years to fully realize. At least initially, American goods had a reputation for being expensive and of considerably less quality than their British counterparts. Much of the earliest manufacturing growth came from the individual family level. For example, a family producing more wool. Though, certainly, there were those looking for much larger projects. The response to the Townsend duties throughout 1768 and into 1769 would prove to be critical for the progress of the imperial crisis. Regardless of the successes or failures of the non-importation agreement, these years saw significant changes in both economics and how the colonies thought about the ongoing crisis. 
both the Americans and the British alike were doubling down in their positions. New political leaders were emerging in places like Virginia, men who would ultimately find themselves at the very forefront of the approaching revolution. Out of the failure of the non-importation agreement, important lessons were learned that would prove invaluable in the future. In Massachusetts, colonial manufacturing would begin to grow as the colonists became increasingly interested in reducing dependence on the British. Of course, the real story in the colonies throughout 1769 was the British occupation of Boston. Well, there was no mass uprising. There certainly was a tense coexistence between the two groups. Although some of the most blatant excesses of the Boston colonists were tempered, it was not to last. The tension and the pressure of the British occupation was about to explode outward, as the imperial crisis was about to move in a new and more dangerous direction. Next time, we are going to see what happens when tensions over the occupation of Boston boil over on March 5, 1770. The end result is going to be five dead colonists and a trial that is going to consume Boston. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we discuss the Boston Massacre. <laughs>